Welcome back to Drilled, I'm Amy Westervelt. This month, we are re-releasing season one of Drilled about the origins of climate denial because a new peer-reviewed study in the journal Science has just been published, and it shows conclusively how much ExxonMobil scientists knew about climate change as the company's executives were claiming that climate science was uncertain. I spoke with the lead author of that study, Jeffrey Supran, about how the study has put to rest this notion of uncertainty in science, which is the focus of the episode you're about to hear. Science is always uncertain to a certain extent, but Exxon took a foundational aspect of science to always be questioning, always be looking for other potential answers, and weaponized it against a public that had very little understanding of how science works and how much uncertainty is baked into the process. If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and the Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. I feel like it was still possible for even Exxon's messaging, I think, was still trying to do this like, well, we didn't know exactly what was happening and nobody really knew exactly what was happening. And there was still some, you know, some some areas to be filled in and whatever. And this really obliterates that idea. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, because I do think, and, and obviously this is a subjective interpretation, but the majority of their statements in response to initial wicks on new journalism and reporting was that, you know, we've tracked the scientific consensus, like tracked has always been their, their watchword for, for this response. And I think that that massively downplays the fact that they weren't just tracking things, you know, they were actually helping to establish scientific consensus, both in private and academic circles. And um, uh, that's been like a common talking point that I think that this really blows up a hole in the side of uh-huh. um yeah and frankly another interesting kind of fallout of this has been a small handful of former scientists reaching out to me corroborating that 
um, wow. you know, that this, <laughs> that this was the case from their perspective too, that, you know, that there was this highly detailed internal awareness. And again, that's, I think, always a, a secondary benefit of the work that you and I do, right? That it can create a snowball effect and can bring others out of the woodwork to talk about this history. Coming up after the break, a special rebroadcast of Season 1, Episode 4, Exploiting Scientist Kryptonite, Certainty. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Drilled. These advertorials, which it became clear were part of a very comprehensive ExxonMobil climate change communication plan, whereby they took out advertorials every Thursday between 1972 and, you know, the 2000s. We started digging into oil companies' comprehensive media influence strategies in the last episode, and we'll continue following those strategies today. We know that they attempted to influence reporters and editors through accusations of bias, that they paid scientists to promote theories their own scientists had proven false, and that they created the op-ad, which effectively shifted coverage of climate change. In the same way that oil company publicists were able to weaponize journalist insecurities about bias against them, they were also able to exploit certain vulnerabilities in science communication and science journalism. This isn't what we're good at, necessarily. Like, if you look at the characteristics of what makes a good scientist, it's actually often diametrically opposed to what makes a good communicator. That's climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, a longtime leader in her field. She is a good communicator, and she says between that and her gender, she's had to work twice as hard to earn credibility as a scientist. This is something I heard over and over again from scientists, that the general sense is if you're good at communicating, you're either not good at science or you're not focused on it. Former Exxon scientist Moral Cohen said this too. I mean, the general attitude would feel that there would be a kind of dilution of his scientific focus. He would be taken less seriously as a scientist. As a company that had long employed hundreds of scientists, ExxonMobil knew this too. They also knew another key hallmark of science communication. It's a wash in uncertainty. That's in part because of how science works. Predictions that come true and repeatable studies and results build consensus over time. But scientists never close the door on another possible explanation. It also has to do with how science funding works. Only someone not interested in future research grants would fail to include the phrase, more research is needed, in their report. Knowing that scientists would be caught off guard by the notion that they must be certain about something, and that corporate execs are generally better at communicating than scientists, the oil industry was able to continuously call climate modeling into question. Even as companies like Exxon and Mobil were using those same models to prospect for fossil fuels. Here's former Exxon CEO Lee Raymond giving a speech in the 90s, more than a decade after his own company's scientists have said there is consensus in the scientific community around climate change. The scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. It all played into the industry's strategy for victory. And we know that because they wrote it down. 
in a memo that was actually published in the New York Times in the late 1990s. In it, members of the American Petroleum Institute indicate that victory will be achieved when they can successfully help people, air quotes, understand that there are uncertainties in climate science. That, quote, recognition of uncertainties becomes part of the, air quotes again, conventional wisdom. Another measure of victory? Media coverage reflects balance on climate science and recognition of the validity of viewpoints that challenge the current conventional wisdom. The stated project goal in the Victory Memo is, a majority of the American public, including industry leadership, recognizes that significant uncertainties exist in climate science and therefore raises questions among those, e.g. Congress, who chart the future U.S. course on climate change. Here's our document guy, Kurt Davies, with that. They said victory will be achieved when we get uncertainty into people's mouths and they talk about targeting science teachers and Congress people and reporters specifically. And, and when media is turned around, that they will achieve success. And then if, the, if we don't do this now, there may be no moment when we can declare victory for our efforts. Like they knew it was now or never in 1998. It was getting away from them. The key goal of the victory strategy was to ensure that the Kyoto Protocol would not be a binding one. In fact, one of the bullet points in the portion of the memo that defines what victory would look like says, quote, Victory will be achieved when those promoting the Kyoto Treaty on the basis of extant science appear to be out of touch with reality. They have metrics on how they're going to win, how many members of Congress, number of talk show appearances, percent of media, very scientific uh, multi-million dollar budgets on data centers and outreach and media and so forth, and then go to evidence of the funding, which, go back to the 1998 memo, they talked about specific funding sources, API, Business Roundtable, Edison Electric, Independent Petroleum Association of America, and National Mining Association, and their members. So they thought they would go out to these trade associations plus the membership, which is all the oil companies, all the coal companies, all all of business, and then run that money through ALIC, CFACT, Competitive Enterprise Institute, Frontiers of Freedom, Marshall Institute. So it was on the front page of the New York Times, and there you have the team, which includes two people who are, were on the Trump transition team, and multiple groups uh, and companies, Exxon, Southern Company, and Chevron, were in this room developing this plan. You know, it, even though it was on the front page of the New York Times, they went ahead with it. The plan outlined in this victory memo was crafted 20 years after Exxon scientists had told executives what was happening and how bad it could be. Exxon scientist Ed Garvey had long since left the company by this point and says he watched in horror as they worked to undermine everything he and his colleagues had done. I found it very scary. I felt kind of powerless at that point. I really think we had something at Exxon. We we're going to be an energy company and we recognize this problem and so we're going to help direct the country away from fossil fuels. And instead it just said, no, we just, we just want to make money on oil and we don't really care what happens. It's, it's I mean, it, it upsets me. I don't know what else I can say. It's just, it was definitely a missed opportunity to lead. And, uh, I do think that if Exxon or maybe another oil company do it, I'd, I'd, leaned on the government in the 80s to say, you need to do this, that the government would have come around on it. There were several key narratives crafted to achieve this, quote, victory, and let's make no mistake, 
the strategy was in fact victorious. Despite the fact that the memo was published in the New York Times on the cover, the strategy was nonetheless executed as laid out. And as you heard there from Kurt, some of the same folks working in the Trump administration today were part of drafting that memo 20 years ago. The most successful narratives included not just underscoring the supposed uncertainty of the science, but also painting those concerned about climate change as liberals and hippies. Again, people who were completely out of touch with reality. It was the original gaslighting, making people feel crazy for believing something that there was actually a ton of evidence for. These campaigns also pushed the idea that acting on climate change was equivalent to undoing the Industrial Revolution, and they highlighted the social responsibility initiatives of oil companies to counterbalance their inaction on climate. Perhaps the most insidious narrative, instilling in the American public the idea that solving global warming is up to individuals, not systems, that it's about you driving too much, or eating too much meat, or changing your light bulbs not any sort of broader systemic change. This is something oil companies repeat over and over again today. In presenting on the history of climate science to a judge in San Francisco earlier this year, Chevron attorney Ted Boutros focused on the idea of oil companies simply supplying a demand. Never mind that they also created that demand and made sure that no one knew there was a downside to it. The gospel of individual responsibility always plays well with American audiences, of course, and this is no exception. That idea, perhaps more than any other, is so pervasive, it's the first thing most people will say when climate change comes up. Last month, when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released its most recent and by far most straightforward and alarming report ever, indicating that we have roughly 12 years to act on climate, a large segment of the media devoted at least part of their coverage to the individual actions citizens can take to help. Go vegetarian, go solar, drive electric cars. All good stuff, but in making individuals responsible for the solution, we subtly hang the blame for the problem on them and their choices as well. The industry has also excelled in promoting mixed messages, doing just enough climate science to seem legit, admitting just enough truths not to seem totally illogical, or to use one of their own phrases, out of touch with reality. Here's science historian Naomi Oreskes on that strategy. One of the reasons that it's so easy for people to sow doubt about climate change or any other issue is that if confusion is your goal, mixed messages are a very effective strategy. So you can say a lot of different things, and some of them may well be true. And you can even quote out of context the true things you have said in order to make it seem as if you're quite reasonable, as if you're not denying climate change, um, as if you're operating in good faith and that you are an entity to be trusted. But if you look at the total body of things that have been said by ExxonMobil or any of these other groups that have been involved in climate disinformation, what you see is this landscape of mixed messages um, in which, you know, there's probably some truth mixed in with an awful lot of falsehood and misinformation. Nowhere was this entire media strategy more apparent than in the New York Times Magazine's issue-long feature this year about the decade from 1979 to 1989, when we almost did something about global warming and then didn't. It's the perfect culmination of the industry's strategy. A journalist and an editor who want to ensure they don't come off as biased. A writer who is new to any sort of science beat and completely new to climate science, so fairly easily played by industry spokespeople and a clever narrative that includes just enough truths that you don't really notice the fairy tales. The story makes the problem of climate change global, 
We all failed to act, apparently, not just the handful of men in power. And the solution, or lack thereof, individual. It's, quote, human nature. We make short-sighted decisions, and there's nothing we can do to change that. Climate scientists were almost universally critical of the story, but the anti-climate science lobby ate it up. I could hear Steve Malloy grinning through the phone. Malloy is a longtime energy industry communications guy who runs the website Junk Science. He was also in the room and is listed as an author on the Victory Memo. He's worked for Exxon in the past and now works primarily for the coal industry. And he was also on the Trump administration's transition team for the EPA, an agency he has worked to dismantle since its inception. Uh, these guys are trying to claim that, you know, Exxon knew... Uh, I don't know if you saw the, you know, the coming issue. New York Times Magazine has this cover of that. Okay, so that kind of blows that whole hypothesis away because they're saying, well, everybody knew in the 1980s. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) (sighs) Victory will be achieved when climate denialists can cite a story in the New York Times Magazine as proof of the validity of their take on global warming. Next time on Drilled. Literally since after World War II, the fossil fuel companies have actively engaged in public relations campaigns to sell the automobile and fossil fuels as the American way of life. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Reporting for this series was done by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Our executive producer is Richard Wiles. Our story and concept consultant was Reka Murthy. Our cover art was designed by Lucas Lisakowski. You can find Drilled wherever you listen to podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find new listeners. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Drilled.